Hello, good humans. It's been a while, but a wholehearted welcome back to the Natural High Club. And I've relocated once more, this time to the US of A. I have to say that my impressions of living here have been very positive. There's an openness to Californians in particular, and a sense of opportunity prevails on these sunny shores. I'm living in San Francisco, having traversed the whole country from east to west. I've met some great people, but San Francisco for me is the jewel in America's crown. It's a charming and intimate city with so much going on and so many interesting and inspiring people to interview. In this episode, I indulge in a fascinating conversation with filmmaker and music aficionado Wayne Price. Wayne has so many strings to his bow and he's on the cusp of releasing a sequel to the cult 70s documentary Heart Worn Highways. His film, Heartworn Highways Revisited, is an homage to the outlaw scene in Nashville, Tennessee, where a small but strong group of musicians create superb tunes which challenge the modern template for commercial music making. We talk about the film, about music and about relationships, as well as Wayne's love of yoga and meditation. And a little caveat here, there is a lot of ambient sound in this interview because we recorded firstly in a sauna in a members club in San Francisco and then in the courtyard of the very same venue. It was a lovely experience and I hope that the ambient sound doesn't detract from your overall enjoyment of the show. You can find all the show notes by visiting naturalhigh.club forward slash Wayne Price. That's W-A-Y-N-E. P-R-I-C-E. You can, of course, like us on Facebook at The Natural High Club or drop me a line at thenaturalhighclub at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. So we're in the Battery in um, San Francisco on Battery Street, wonderful members club. How long have you been a member here? Um, I've been a member here now for about two years, a year and a half, but it's funny, my wife is a musician, so... Uh, you came one of those nights a few weeks okay. ago. She plays every Tuesday night. Um, but they always gave us a guest list, and and then they just offered us both uh, creative memberships. They have these, uh, they call Artists in Residence Program, which and is great. Yeah, it's, it's a great place to be, right? It's, well, you know, you're talking to a creative and not like a, a, a wheeler-dealer VC or whatever in San Francisco, whatever the freaking terminology is that people use these days, but... Um, I appreciate those people, and if you are one of them, this is like the ultimate clubhouse. Um, in New York and LA, they have something called Soho House, which they also have in London. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar. So mm -hmm. it started in London. Um, that is more, it tends to veer more on the creative media side. Okay. Uh, in LA, for instance, it's like, you know, some of the most high profile, like Hollywood meetings take place at the one on Sunset Boulevard. Yep. Um, but here, this isn't Soho House, eh, but this is San Francisco's version of Soho House. And, uh, you know, this tends to be a place that's used similarly, but in the Silicon Valley. You know, realm. I love, uh, I love the place. It's yeah. uber posh in the sort of <laughs> diner restaurant area, isn't it? And yeah. then upstairs you've got all these funky little chambers. It's like loads of little mini bars where you go into all these different rooms and there's something going on in each, each and every one. Well, a lot of them anyway, several of them. So yeah. I love that. It's so great. It's got and they're completely soundproofed as well, aren't they? So like, you walk out the walk out of this crazy little party and close the door and you can't hear anything. Yeah. Now it's the, the details of this place are really highly considered. And it's, what's great is that, different than Soho House, which is kind of now a, uh, a franchise of sorts. I don't even know if there's a franchise model, but there are Soho Houses everywhere. Mm. And they all tend to follow a similar schematic, although they all have their own personality. Uh, this is just a one-time only. There's only one battery. And it's started by one really 
cool, quirky guy who, you know, made a bunch of money by selling a company, but it's all really his sort of vision and his creativity. His name's Michael Birch okay. and his wife Sochi, who are super cool and accessible. Like, I met Michael because he sat down next to me one night while Michelle was playing on the couch and, you know, just started a conversation with him. I didn't know he was the owner of the place and he didn't act like it. He was just, it actually was his birthday that night. Okay. And he kind of left the birthday party to kind of hang over with us because we liked the music. And, you know, so... Do you, is yeah. he a self-made man? And do you know what business he is in? Or is he... I do... I don't... I forgot the name of it, but it was, uh... It was definitely some big web company. I, I, tech, <laughs> of course. Tech, San Francisco. It's funny, because I, I... I came here really not speaking the language <laughs> three years ago, uh, and now I understand the language, but I'm still not, like, in it every day. Although, I started working for a tech company recently, which is yeah. kind of funny... Um, how that ended up happening, although I'm still not in the tech company as a traditional techie, techie you know, I'm bringing a different angle to that side of the business. So, uh, um, to my, the question of Michael, I know it was a very big company and I know he sold it for a lot of money <laughs> and he used a very small percentage of that money to renovate this building and open the battery. Uh, and he's a VC too, so he's obviously got investments in other companies. But okay. I wish I could speak more. You can probably look him up. Michael Birch. Michael Birch. Yeah. I'll definitely do some research. Yeah. I should have done more research in general before I conducted this interview. But <laughs> Wayne Price, uh, I met you in Amsterdam. And, That's right. And it was complete serendipity because it's a relationship <laughs> which has blossomed since I got to San Francisco and continues to blossom. Yeah. Uh, so the thing that really interests me about you and the reason why I wanted to interview you is because every time I do speak to you, you seem to tell me about another string to your bow, something else that you do. <laughs> and it's symptomatic of that was our conversation before this interview started in which you told me about your penchant for yoga. Yeah. Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about that because it's something I'm very interested in. Um, how often do you do it and what sort of effect does it have on you personally? Um, well, do you practice yoga? I did practice yoga until recently, and as I've said to you, my life became very hectic, and I sort of dropped the ball in terms of practicing uh, meditation, but... Are we talking about meditation or yoga? I was talking... Did I just say yoga? You did say Sorry. yoga. It was a late night, man. Uh, no, 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 that's... <laughs> I meant meditation. That's cool, because I do yoga too. Up until recently, I was doing yoga a lot more, and I do have a meditation practice as well. Okay. And I do think that they're great complements mm, to each absolutely, other. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so even though you didn't mean to say yoga... We uh, can go on to that. I'll say that, even though meditation, I think, is a little bit more interesting, because I feel like yoga is now... People understand that it's more, at least here in the Bay and throughout the U.S., I'm not sure what it's like in Europe, but um, it seems like most people understand what the benefits are of yoga and mm. do that. Um, but yoga being a, a physical practice that aligns with the breath and meditation is something that you know you're basically trying to maintain an even breath and be calm despite the difficulty of your thoughts and sort of the rockiness that might be happening in your mind. Oh absolutely and maybe the distinction is um, yoga is training the body and meditation is training the mind. Um, they're both training the mind. Okay nice. But one of them is phys using more physical um, motions and breathing. Okay imagine when I'm doing yoga when I go through my head and I, I may have heard this somewhere but I've adopted it anyway, um, that yoga, if you're doing it right, it's kind of like you're just putting yourself a little bit physically outside of your comfort zone. Okay. And, and, and when you do it just a little bit, not too much so that it hurts or it's really uncomfortable, but just enough so that you're holding a pose a little longer than feels good or maybe your muscles start shaking or maybe like... Oh, the, yeah, tell the, me about it. Yeah, or maybe you, you're stretching a little bit, you know, beyond your normal threshold. But just enough, if you can do that and maintain a steady breath, keeping yourself 
calm because your breath is how you stay calm. Yeah. You know, if you can do that and you do that regularly, what ends up happening is that in real life when you're not in a yoga class and something kind of makes you feel uncomfortable, which manifests itself physically. Is that when is that when you're doing the, the really good for your body? Is that that's, when you're getting the benefit? That's when the work of yoga really shows itself okay. best because what ends up happening is you don't even have to think about it because you've been physically practicing putting yourself in an uncomfortable position mm -hmm. and breathing through it steadily. Right. So that this happens. Did we lose it? Did we lose it? No, we're all good. We're all good. I'm just breaking hot. But... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're in the sauna. Um, Absolutely. So this is, again, this is another thing. Like physically uncomfortable, like staying in a sauna, for instance, like a little bit long, uh, not too long. You want to be comfy and be conscious of not like passing out. But it, it allows you when you have those moments in life where your frustration builds and you start to feel your blood pressure go up and your body starts to get physically uncomfortable. If you practice yoga regularly, you start to just automatically maintain a more calm demeanor and more calm breath because you've trained yourself to do that. Nice. Mm. So that's for people, you know, you think all the benefits happen in the room, but the room is just a training ground. It's like, you know, if you do practice martial arts, I mean, yes, it's amazing in the room. That's part of what, what's so nice is that training. But if you ever find yourself, which is very rare, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you need to use the martial arts sure. in the real world, it should automatically kick in. You right. should understand the flow and the motion. Okay. Um, so that's yoga. Meditation is something that uh, came into my life just totally serendipitously about five years ago. Um, where uh, I learned uh, a certain form of meditation called Transcendental Meditation, okay. uh, TM, mm -hmm. which I subsequently learned after even adopting it in my life that there are people that have, there's all sorts of feelings about it. There are people that look at it like it's a cult. Um, I've, heard, I've, heard, I've heard a bunch of negative things, which I just want to say my experience with it has been only positive. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I'm not getting paid or anything like that from sure. them. I also, you know, it sometimes I think I benefit from you know, having been totally naive when I went in and not really knowing much, and I was open to it. Um, and I also was gifted it. I didn't, a lot of people pay, you know, a, a good amount of money for okay. it. I was, it happened to be I was in the right place at the right time. No, so I'll so. caveat all those things. That said, <laughs> if I did have to pay for it, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have at the beginning because it would have seemed like, you know, why am I paying for something that's like, it's not yoga. It's not going into a room every week with a trainer. It's something that you learn once. You spend four days, you get trained, and then you have it for the rest of your life. But it seems kind of like, okay, you're, you, why can't I just learn this on my It's own? quite a hard right. sell, isn't it? It's, it's quite a hard sell because it's, it's quite a subtle thing to explain the benefits of. Yeah. And until you've done it and until you get into the practice and the habit of it, you can't re it's also hard to fathom how yes. you're really going to benefit from it. I started doing yeah. meditation with somebody the other day. It was the first time I'd ever done it. And she's like, well, what am I supposed to do? And I was just like, nothing. Just listen. And take yeah, it, it's, I, I found that I think of all the practices out there, it's probably the hardest. And it's the it's the hardest because of the the lack of anything to do physically. It's kind of like you just like what do I do? And people just it's so indicative of our time right now, especially when we're sure. when we are so constantly busy to the point where sure the, the, yeah the idea of even sitting still and looking out the window on a train is is a remote idea because as soon as you're still you go right to your phone. So true. You know, so so now you're telling somebody that I'm gonna pay to learn how to sit still for twenty minutes and not look at anything, while that might seem like something that we all really wanna learn how to do, 
it's probably the hardest thing to teach somebody to do. And it requires, it requires practice. But I'll tell you now, five years into my practice, it's the best investment that I didn't make. Wow. <laughs> it's like, I mean, and I'm investing in it by practicing it every day. Every day? Uh, every day. Wow. Yeah. 20 minutes, half an hour? Usually twice a day. Twice a day. When, when I get up and in the evening? Yeah, right when I get up, um, although I've been doing it more on the train. To, I, now I've been taking the BART every day into San Francisco for work. I, if I can get a seat, uh, I usually just do it on the train. I put on noise-canceling headphones and just kind of zone out. Nice. Uh, and then I will do it sometime in the mid-afternoon, around like this time, around like 4 or 5 o'clock. Okay. Which is naturally when you have your mid-afternoon low, when you kind of get, you know, your body goes down. Do you want to pause? And uh, I, I can yeah. see you. <laughs> let's, go get, let's go get some water. <laughs> let's do it. Maybe. <laughs> We moved from the sauna due to my severe dehydration and into the beautiful courtyard of the battery where we started touching upon the subject of relationships and marriage because Wayne is about to be a father for the first time. God, man, my verdict is so out on like what to say. Like, I don't know. I don't even know how to give advice in this. For me personally, I feel like I just turned 41 and I'm about to have my first kid and I don't, I don't regret anything I've done in my life. Um, wow. But... Something feels. I haven't had a kid yet, and I've and I've been talking to other people that have had kids who are older. Um, you know, older meaning like not in their early twenties or whatever. You know, okay. <laughs> having kids like then, um, and they're just like, man, it's the best thing that I ever did, and and I and it's something that I was freaked out about forever, like about like thinking about like I don't know, I'm gonna have it the wrong person or whatever. And in many of these cases, relationships haven't even panned out, but they still love being parents. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, of course. So and sometimes that can make the relationship. You know, yeah. sometimes that can strengthen the relationship because mm -hmm. you've got a, a beautiful common thread. And yeah. How long have you guys been together? Uh, Michelle and I got married three years ago. Actually, it's funny you asked that question. I, I, we forgot that the other day was our six-year anniversary wow. of the day that we met. Wow. <laughs> so we met October 20th, um, whatever six years ago was, 2012. But, you know, every, yeah. but if every day feels like, you know, an anniversary, then you know, it doesn't even matter, does it? If you're really, really happy if together. You every even... day feels like an anniversary. <laughs> Let me tell you something, my good man. Well, yeah, well, I shouldn't be giving Every day advice. does not feel like an anniversary. Relationships are, are tough. Mm. And there are days where... It feels really just like fuck. You I'm guys be just with the seem same like you person. do it effortlessly, though. Uh, that's that's, yeah, it's great that we do. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's great that it comes across that great way. Great that it comes across that way. Uh, we are very practiced at how we put on a persona, I guess. No, it's it. it we we we're really we're both very cognizant of the work and effort that goes into it. You know, you. I think what happens is, you either you have expectations about what a relationship is supposed to do or the type of person you're looking for and all these things and then people just start to get like discouraged when this person that they thought was going to deliver all these things isn't or it's not as easy as you feel like it quote unquote should be and the reality is that you're with another human being that has their own set of vulnerabilities and fears and and baggage and their own expectations and they're judging you against the same, they're doing the same thing to you. And if you don't get on the same page, at least with like the broader expectation being like, shit, we're growing, we're changing. We have to find a way to use our own special skill set to support each other mm. and give each other space to be who we are. Yeah. If you don't figure out a way to do that, no matter how much you love somebody at the beginning, no matter how great you feel, it's eventually going to become more stale and static. And eventually you're going to be like, 
is this the right person? Or, oh, my God, I thought I was getting this, but I got that. So we've had, I mean, our first year of marriage, I thought, I didn't think we were going to make it. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a really, really rough first year. Hmm. And people have told me that first year is the Why? hardest. Why do you think that was? Uh, Different expectations once you get married. Yes. Even though it's just a bit of paper. Yeah. It's, 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 the, it's all perception. You know, it's, it's the, the frame in which you're viewing it now mm. has changed. You know, mm. when, you, when you're not married, there's no, you're like, hey, you know, it's fun. It's free. We can do what we want. We're not, in, we're not bound. Yeah. We're not yeah. so deaf You could walk away part. tomorrow, theoretically, although you never would. You, you yeah. could walk away tomorrow, whereas totally. it becomes more difficult. Right. And then you put that on. You put, now now you, you, you've, you've both agreed to put this enormous amount of pressure on what your, per, your own perception and other people's perception is of what your relationship is. Yeah. So even though, yeah, one, from one day to the next, it's like you turn, you know, you have your birthday. Do you change? Does like, you, do you wake up with like gray hair or does like, no, everything's gradual. Change happens very slowly. Yeah. Nothing changes. But when your perception changes overnight, that's very powerful. You know, like, you, and so we, I, we definitely went through like some like, you know, just, just being more, having more scrutiny about did we make the right decision? Like little things. Whenever there'd be an argument, it would be like, "Fuck! I mean, this is the argument that I'm going to be living with the rest of my life." You do, know? Do, yeah, totally. That is going to can feel pretty claustrophobic. I'm sure. Yeah. But do you think the idea of marriage, or do you think marriage itself, will become obsolete in future? Do you think that? I mean, is there any real point to it anymore? It's, it's symbolic more than anything, I suppose. I do find that marriage is an antiquated, um, whatever you'd call it, an antiquated. Format, institution. Institution, yeah. I mean, the reason why people got married originally, like why that came about, was much more of a business transaction to ensure stability. There was a financial exchange that went on. When you look at the history of it and why it even persisted over time, mm. it went from like something that made a lot of sense for you know the, the roles that were common of the time of men and women, of family status, and it was just a way to ensure support. And that's gone out the window. Like people, you know, men and women both support themselves, have careers, do things differently. We live in an age where, you know, we value our freedom almost more than anything else and our ability to do that. Um, and more than anything, now we are, we've become, our expectations have gone through the roof about what we, you know, what we're hoping for from our lives, what mm. we're capable of, and the places we could travel, the things we could do, blah, 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 that it just, there's, the, the cards are stacked against anybody who wants to just tie themselves to another human being mm. in general. Yeah. So... And I think that that's why we have such a high divorce rate. And I think it would be higher if there wasn't so much social stigma attached to, you know, staying together and, you know, how difficult it would be to get out of it. So if you guys don't yeah. stay together, there really is no hope for humanity <laughs> because you seem like the perfect couple. Maybe oh, there's skeletons great. in the closet, but, you know, you come across. And I'm sure if you ask most of your friends, I'm, I'm a new friend to you, but I'm sure yeah. if you ask most of your longer term friends well they'd all say yeah they're an amazing couple you just seem so good together well I think that's part of like the honesty of like asking the question and being in a you know just being straight up I think that I think we are great I think and, and I think we're great because we on the record no I <laughs> on the record you're fucking right man we're the best yeah. um, I think I, I, I respect I'm, we're both watching each other grow and I think if you if you if you're able to look at yourself and you see like this person, even though it's hard, is making me better. Um, that's that will outlast. Like you'll start to notice, like holy shit, like I'm getting more compliments. I'm recognizing I'm more, 
together. There are certain things that I'm not worrying about because she's taking care of them, mm. and and vice versa. Like she tells me, like I like she can't imagine, you know, the the, the person that she is now if she hadn't met me. You know, like I've exposed her to things that she didn't think about. People that are now close friends of hers. You know, so we're both enhancing each other's That's lives. That's the most important thing, and I think yeah. communication is key as well. Yes. Communication is absolutely key because yes. people can sort of think, um, feel sort of angst or anger or resentment under the surface, yeah. and not if they don't. If they don't communicate that, then things could build up and go all wrong. Yeah, but you're still human, and humans are volatile. I mean, even last night, like, she was, we were having, she was in Vegas with family, and, like, the whole day we were having this really light, fun, very positive banter back and forth, like, because I was saying hi to her family, and she said to me stuff about, like, things she's thinking about for, like, baby wallpaper, and, you know, it was just, like, <laughs> it was funny and chill. And then, like, all of a sudden she was, I, I checked in at her with her to see if she, what time she was heading back on her flight, um, from Vegas, and she was on the runway, and like her whole demeanor in the text changed. She's like, she's like, uh, you know, I didn't realize how quickly. I, I just started thinking about how quickly is this all coming up, and I'm and I'm kind of freaking, freaking out. out, you know, like all the things that we have to do, and and I don't know when there's time to do it, and like we had some things on the schedule that were planned for us for just relaxation and fun, and she's now texting me like, I don't think we're gonna be able to do this, and like, and now I'm suddenly going like. Okay, I gotta not get sucked in yeah, to, to that energy because I started feeling stressed because mm. she was starting to panic, and I was in, I was spending the day being creative and finishing work that I felt like I had to for myself. But if I start to get allow myself to get sucked into that that drama, which I've done many times, shit goes bad. Yeah, you know? and of course, and that's not what she needs either. She no. needs you to remain strong at that point. You need to be the calm opposite to her right. panic. Exactly, that point. Exactly. and vice versa. When you're right. panicking, she'll calm you down. Exactly. You know what I mean? But that's the type of thing that requires practice. Yes. Practice, practice. And empathy and, yes. yeah, and appreciation empathy. of the other person. Yeah. At the risk of making this into a married <laughs> podcast, um, I, we're, we're now out. Oh, the places will go. <laughs> we're now out of the steam room, and you saw me visibly uh, yes. uh, dehydrating yes. in, the, in a wonderful sauna. But um, we're out of there now. But what we were discussing during that, uh, that moment was the uh, idea of the benefits of meditation. So I just want to finish uh, that yeah, yeah, and then yeah. We can actually, talk about what we came in to talk about, which is film in your life. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, uh, I will. Br- I'm not letting you get away that easy. I'm going to bring it back to the relationship very quickly and let you, let you, but let you know that meditation actually saved my relationship. Tell me. So, Fine. so we. So, like I just described to you, there the moments of sort of anxiety and panic and neuroses that would take over both of us. To be honest with you, towards the beginning we're starting to hit a frequency that we that I basically I realized was too much and we had both learned sorry was, this was at the start of the pregnancy no 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 no. this right. was this was maybe relationship. yeah this was maybe like five years let's see we met six years ago I'd say probably like four and a half years ago was it a particularly busy part of your life yeah well I hadn't been you know when we our first two years of our relationship we weren't living in the same place mm. I was in New York and she was in SF and I happened to be living in Utah for a, a, a short stint um and she came out to visit me there, and I was working with a bunch of like entrepreneurs and people who like attract a lot of thought leaders. And they had brought the David Lynch Foundation, who um, are on the forefront of teaching TM. Uh, and uh, and they offered everybody who is working for the company a free meditation seminar. And it just so happened that Michelle had arrived on the same morning that a four-day commitment was asked to if you're going to do this. Okay. And she was staying for I think five days. So, and it wasn't like the whole day. It was just like you have to go for like a two-hour session and then commit to And you have back. to do it pretty much. I was like, well, I, I looked at her and I was like, you know, something I've been open to learning. It seems like a good opportunity. It's free. Like, you know, why not? And she was like, great. And so we did. And, and, and immediately it took both of us. We both realized like immediately. 
in the first session, um, Bob Roth, who runs the David Lynch Foundation, he's the, he is an, uh, probably, I'm guessing he's probably in his early 60s, um, but he has, like, he's one of these people that you know is older, and they, he could be in his 80s for all I know, or he could even be in his 50s. He he just looks young in his eyes. Timeless. Right you know, he has this demeanor to him that it's just... He's the type of person, you just see him sit down and you're like, I I don't know why I want to be him. When I'm his age, whatever it is, I want to... Would the term Zen be uh, ascribed to him? Yes, for, for yes, sorry. fine. Okay. For all okay. intents and purposes, there is a Zen to him. Um, that you know, he he lives what he I guess what he preaches. I haven't even heard him speak. Believes yet. in himself. Yeah, he's confident, he, assertive, but he humble. He speaks or whatever. softly and slowly. And he has a, a nice tone to his voice. He smiles without being overly smiley. You know, mm-hmm. he's just just genuine. has. There's just something that's very genuine in him. And he sits down and he knows enough. But at this point, because he's been teaching TM for a while, and he knows that people are skeptical and people are busy, and you know, so he says he 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 tells you that your mind is kind of like uh, the ocean. And as he was telling you this, I'm like, going, all right, it's like the ocean. He's like, and so when you're on a boat out at sea and the waves start picking up and it gets choppy, you're getting slung around and, you know, you're feeling like, oh, shit, and if a storm comes, you know, you, it, it could get really scary. He's like, that's, that's your mind, but that's the mind that we all know and see. It's like the reality is that your mind is actually the full depth of the ocean. Right. Beneath the surface, it's not so choppy. It's like if you just go down 20 meters, no matter how choppy it is up there, it's quiet and it's calm. And that's the way we actually are. Although we only, because it's so harrowing on the surface, we get caught up (laughs) only in the surface. Although all along, we actually have the depth there. We just have to learn how to access that. Okay. And TM TM puts you to transcend, which is the first word of transcendental meditation is to go down into a depth that, that you have inside you that we all have there. Um, and as you were saying this, Seth, I mean, I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I really, I, I want to do that. And so what all you do, the practice is super, super simple. At least, at least when you describe it. In, in practice, it becomes hard because we all ascribe our own theories as to what is supposed to happen. But really all that you're doing is dedicating 20 minutes Twice a day, ideally, but a lot of people don't have, just find that they don't have the time and they do it once a day. That's better than nothing, for sure. And you're given a mantra. And a mantra is... You are given a mantra or you... Yeah, you... part of the training is that you're, you're working with somebody who's been trained to teach you TM and they ask you a bunch of questions and you have a f- ah, few sessions and they... they give you one. Yeah, and it's because it's such, an, it's such an ancient practice. I mean, this goes back, you know, thousands of years. It's been practiced and passed on that... They, and I don't know how, I don't ask the question, honestly, you can call it fluff, you can call it woo-woo, whatever words you want to call it, they give you a mantra based on interaction. How, many, do you, how many mantras do you think there are? Do you think there's like ten? That, <laughs> I think just, it's like a star Michelle, sign. And you Michelle and I think that there's like four, you know? <laughs> and like, they're just like... Don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I don't know, I mean, there's... <laughs> We don't tell them to each other. That's right. the thing. Like that's you kinda, the thing. They are supposed to be kept secret. Yeah, they're supposed to be kept secret. It's so your you, little Michelle thing. Michelle knows your mantra. No, no. Really? She keeps, wow. ask, she keeps asking me. Like, and I'm, nope. It was great. Yeah. You do and, really keep it to yourself. Yeah. But so the, you're not giving it up. I'm not giving it up. No. <laughs> because I feel like that's part of, like, really what's so special is that when I'm doing my meditation, it's my time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's my time. I don't want to... 
I don't want anyone to know, like, even if she knows I'm meditating and she decides to fuck with me one day and, like, starts, like, saying my mantra, it'll start getting in my head and it'll be ruined. It'll be tarnished. Yeah. You know? Does it have a meaning, the mantra? No, that's the best part about it. So the mantra is just two syllables Mm -hmm. that mean nothing next to each other. They're just two syllables next to each other. And that's part of why they've been crafted is that they're not going to, they really shouldn't trigger anything in your mind. It should just be two sounds. And so all you're doing is when you sit down, you're supposed to first sit down and not do anything. Just kind of breathe and be calm as much as you can. And like you said before, it's so hard because you're coming from your world and your brain is spinning on all the things that you got to do, the life you want to live, mm. the, the woes that you have, the worries, all the shit is all mixed up in there. So you Thinking decide, is just a sort of default motion of the brain. Do you know what I mean? Like you just you're not, never going to stop thinking. Actually, to meditate literally translates to think. Uh, and people think, I need to meditate and I can't stop thinking. Well, you're not meditating. Mm. To meditate on something is to think on something. Right, all this is doing is it is detaching emotion from the thoughts. All right. Okay. So what you're doing is you you start to you you allow yourself the space to first be calm and say, all right, I'm meditating now. I'm sitting down. I'm going to be calm. Then about like a minute or so in, you start to say your mantra and you repeat it slowly and not out loud, but you repeat it in your mind. And that helps you block out other thoughts. Basically, yeah. it's basically it's an anchor is mm-hmm. what it is. Because what's going to happen is you start saying it. And you're repeating it, you're cognizant, I'm saying it, and then a thought comes in and your brain starts to like track that thought and you're starting to go down the rabbit hole and then you go, oh, I'm meditating. You start to say your mantra again. Right. And then you start doing it and then another thought comes. And so you start going that direction. Oh, wait, I'm meditating. Yeah. You start to say it again. yourself back. And sometimes 20 minutes will pass and you'll have spent the whole 20 minutes sort of like going from one thought to, okay, I'm meditating, to another thought to, oh, yeah, I'm meditating, to, and just kind of ping-ponging that way. And that's okay because you're not really giving yourself enough time throughout that thought ping-pong to yep. really, like, go deep and get yourself really worked up. Mm-hmm. So you'll still probably end up being calm because you allow yourself to come back. However, the really good times when, for me and Michelle, when we think that meditation is really, quote-unquote, working, although it's working all the time, um, the best ones are when you just start to you get into this zone, which is the transcendent zone, where all of a sudden, that 20 minutes, like you're almost, you're, you're as relaxed, almost giggly. You're 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 not quite sleeping, but you might. But it's like you're in this nebulous space that's better than a dream. That just feels you could just feel all the tension sort of leave. Uh, and I just did it right before I met you today. And you felt like that. I felt it because beforehand, you know, I. I was, I had, you know, it's been a nice Sunday, honestly. I had a nice brunch and but you're had a, a busy nice guy. meeting. But yeah, but there's a lot going on in my mind, and I was feeling a little tired still. And I just was like, you know, it's, I would probably meditate later, but because of the time I said to meet you and they had a steam room, I was like, screw it, I'm gonna get myself in the nice zone. And I did, and like, my mind felt just so much better afterwards. It's like if you keep open your computer and you keep opening windows up on it it slows the computer down. Mm-hmm. And eventually, if you don't ever turn it off, it's going to crash. Right. This is our lives. Yeah. Our lives are from a million nice. windows open. Mm. And what meditation is, is a hard reset. Yeah. I do think there's practical applications apart from just in itself making you feel happy and more calm as well. I think that, you know, yeah. there's times when, for example, when I was doing meditation regularly, yeah. I noticed that I could, when I was in the zone, when I've been doing it for a really, really good sequence, a really long sequence, I'd find myself being able to detach myself from emotions, negative emotions, on a daily basis. Like if, for example, I hit my head 
on a cupboard or something like that. Yeah. When I was in the zone with meditation, I'd hit my head and my first reaction would be to go, oh, bollocks, fuck, whatever. But then you can just pull yourself out of that really, really well, yeah. which is why I like the idea of, of meditation being sort of mind training, you know, training your mind to... Yeah. Exercising your mind so that you can use it to your to your benefit a lot more, rather than you know having all the detrimental parts of the mind too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. Does Got it make it. sense? Yeah, I, dude. I mean, you, that was brilliantly described, beautifully articulated, and Thank I think that, that it's, yeah, it's really great to find out more about transcendental meditation because I haven't. There are all different types of meditation, and I only just happened to learn TM as the first one, and it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's 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 mindfulness, there's loving kindness, there's I mean, people use that app, um, Headspace. Yep, you use that. You know, which I think is great. I don't even know if there is a name attributed to what's happening there, but just the fact that it's so easily accessible. I think doing anyone, dedicating that time. People say I don't have the time, I can't afford the time, and I I say you can't afford to not do it. Yep. You know, really. It's Mm -hmm. like it it gives you more time. Because it gives you, instead of like burning out and then you're like sluggishly, I have to finish this, I'm fucked if I don't do this or whatever, like... You take the 20 minutes, and then those next couple hours become like, all right, feeling good. So getting back into it tomorrow. <laughs> so getting back into it tomorrow. Um, meditation, amazing. Yeah. I want to talk to you about your film because yeah. it's absolutely fascinating, uh, the whole concept. And I'm, I, I really admire you for having, for having not put it out there. And, <laughs> and it is going to be released very soon, if not already. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's been a six-year journey, I should say. So, so, so but let's start with um, Heartworn, Hi- Heartworn Highway is the original film, 1976. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. What, what does that film mean to you? Can you describe it in your own words and, and the impact that it had on you at the time? Yeah, uh, let me finish my thought, though, just so that anybody Please. listening to this knows it's coming out. I don't know when you're going to release this of course to, your, I was gonna to, ask your, you again. to your hordes of followers. <laughs> you know, follower. Tim Ferriss, I know he's been promoting your podcast <laughs> yeah, these days. It's uh, it's coming out November twenty eighth on iTunes, Amazon, and all that. It's called Heartworn Highways Revisited, and uh, now to your original question, which is about the original film. I will Heart make Worn reference Highway. to that on my podcast. There will yeah. be there'll be some show notes where all the information. Hell yeah, because yeah. I'm only here because my publicist sent me here and said I gotta <laughs> exactly. fucking be on this damn and podcast. It's a small so, window yeah, as well. Seriously, yeah. damn it, promote me. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Uh, uh, so Heartworn Highways is a movie that I mean I'm a, as a as both a filmmaker and music like freak. I'd say actually music is more has has affected my life more so than film even though I I have made my living in film and I love filmmaking. I think that movies have let me down and music never lets me down. Oh. Like even like I can always find some music I, I that that will work for me. Whereas if I I could decide on a film or something and be like eh or I wasted time like that. Um, it could disappoint. It, it could dis- doesn't, doesn't disappoint. No, as often. I can always okay. like, if I'm into the song, I change it. I know what's I know what's going to work. Nice. It's always the right medicine okay. music for me. Um, and probably, I, I, I use a camera the way that I would use an instrument if I ever learned an instrument well enough. Yeah. Um, I just never did. Okay. So, uh, so here's this movie now that is this like perfect blend of of filmmaking which has been revered like the film geeks the documentary nerds out there who just like know all the like niche random shit that you haven't heard of you say Heartworn Highways and they're like oh yeah that's like one of the greatest music films of all time are we talking about niche random technical stuff technique filmography or are we talking about the actual the content the substance of what's in there all of it I mean like you know there's a brilliantly shot film and the content and subject matter is brilliant I mean it's just one of those things like when, when, when a a film really works well for somebody that watches film all the time. It's like it's like your, your palate gets 
the, the standard shit doesn't work for you anymore. It's like if you eat, you never eat cheese, American cheese probably tastes great, mm. right? right? But if you eat cheese all the time, you need like gorgonzola, right? Oh, you need a variety. You need some like Absolutely. heavy shit or else because yeah, yeah. your palate, like. You don't want so, the same trick every time. Exactly. Because you become aware of that trick and it just gets boring. There you go. And so I think for anybody who's like an aficionado of something, it needs to do a little bit more. And I think what, mm. what, when I, as a both as a filmmaker, I'd heard about Heartworn Highways because it was one of these films that, you know, music and documentary lovers both would say like that's that's such it's so worthwhile, such an amazing project. However, it was impossible to find. It wasn't. It was never really released. Uh, it played the second Sundance Film Festival. Uh, I think it was 1980 or 1981. Um, it never got distribution because it didn't have any big stars in it. Right. At the time, the movie was about uh, a community of outlaw country songwriters in Nashville what does, what, and Austin, Texas. What do you mean Texas. by outlaw? And what does the film mean by outlaw? Yeah, uh, outlaw is a, is, is a movement. You know, in music, there's so many genres and subgenres. I mean, just house music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got how many deep house, uh, you know, trance, trap, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, right? There's so many different subgenres in that realm. Well, in, in country music and, and, and Americana and folk and even all those are, are genres, you get subgenres in them as well. So outlaw country is a subgenre of country that was started by a bunch of songwriters that revolved around a guy named Guy Clark. Um, and and Towns Van Zandt, those guys were at the center of it, and, oh, and, and, and they're at the center of the film, the original film. Right? Yes. So what happened was, and you know, there's it's it's debatable exactly how it came about, the name Outlaw. Um, what I like to say, and what I've heard said before, is that the name Outlaw basically came from the idea that these guys were living in Nashville. Uh, or Austin, and Austin, but mostly around Nashville. And Nashville was like the Hollywood for music, and that people knew that they can come there and learn and, and, and make a lot of money by selling, writing songs for mainstream radio. Okay. They have something called Music Row there, where songwriters go to, and and people at the time were doing a lot of that because they were trying to become big time country stars and be famous. Mm-hmm. And Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt, and Steve Earle, and Steve Young, and a bunch of these Rodney Crowell, a bunch of these like songwriters who were there were like all they wanted to do was just write music and drink a lot and smoke their weed and just fucking be honest with each other um and not really chase that that they didn't bullshit. want to do the commercial thing they didn't want to do the so they were like you know the indie whatever quote nice. you know how they indie, want to stay true to their craft exactly so so to them they were outlaws right. because everyone else was like you know trying to like you know even chris christopherson who was friends with them who like gained a lot of Sorry, there's a, there's a. That's probably my my, my son slash daughter in five years running around. I'm like, ah, this is what I gotta expect. Um, but yeah, so they so the outlaw thing was just basically like we're not going mainstream, and nice. and it became a movement. It became this like mini movement, and 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 now is a, a genre of music that just basically says we respect the songwriting first and foremost. So you might hear a song about about tomatoes, like literally, like Guy Clark has a great song about tomatoes. You know, which seems willy-nilly, but it's like a beautiful song. He also has a song that's that's called "Anyhow I Love You," which is basically like the the chorus goes, "Just you wait until tomorrow when you wake up with me at your side and find I haven't lied about nothing." Uh, and I wouldn't trade a tree for the way I feel about you in the morning. Anyhow, I love you. And it's like, and it's basically about that feeling of like, you know, I don't even know how to tell you, don't go, but just trust me, don't go. <laughs> nice. And it's and it's his way of saying that, and it's like, you know, 
mainstream radio wants to tell you more about like they have this whole thing now, shake your sugar shaker and like you know just party and drink beer and be with the boys or everything is just horribly wrong like I lost my house my dog my car yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like it's one of those two cliches mm-hmm. and these guys live somewhere in the middle of it in any case I think what happens with that music even though it sounds a lot like country it sounds so different it's really like there's it, it, something that's just more provocative it, it draws you in closer um, so it's got a strong identity than outlaw you yes. can sort of you can you can discern out you can distinguish outlaw from uh, from from other sort of forms of country and folk yeah, music. Yeah, I could. I mean, there are times where it, it feels it feels very country, but there's just something about it that you're just like, this is this is not radio country. This is fucking outlaw country. This is something that's just. It's got grit. It's got integrity. It's got something that's beyond just like put on the radio and feel good or feel really bad <laughs> it's interesting because i think you did an interview a couple of years ago with rolling stone magazine yeah. about this yeah. uh, about this film which i'll come on i'm obviously going to come on to the secret in a minute but it was interesting you're talking about genres because in the that article it said there's a recurrent struggle to define in nashville what makes country what makes pop what makes an outlaw yeah what defines this group even but the choice to center around Macaulay speaks the loudest. This is about writers with a story to tell who live and die for the sake of the song, not for a particular genre. Yes. I really, really like that idea. Yeah. So that's the central idea, I suppose, of the original film then. Yes. These people who just love the genuinity of so- proper, pure songwriting. Yeah, no, these guys are, they're hardcore. Like, they're, it's, and it's funny, because that, that piece is talking about my movie, which is Heart One Highways Revisited, and about a musician named John Macaulay, who... I decided to put at the center of that movie, and from the outside looking in, he is not an obvious choice to be the quote-unquote Guy Clark of the new generation. Okay. He, he is not a country guy. He's not from Texas. He's from he's from Rhode Island. You know, uh, he's he's he hit, a lot of his music has been like um, people think of Deer Tick, which is the band that he leads, as like sort of a raucous kind of. Uh, some people even said it's more like like frat rock which I think is ridiculous, but I've been at their shows where there's, you know, where he was wasted on stage, like literally spitting beer at the audience, almost like a punk show, you know, and I get why they get that, you know, reputation. Mm. That said, you listen to the lyrics of his songs, especially the ones that are more ballady and slow, and all of Deer Tick Records have the slower ballady songs. His most famous song is probably called, it's called Ashamed. I think it's one of his most famous songs. Um, and the lyrics are just mind-boggling. Really? They are so good. They're so good to the point where, like, everybody who I brought to the table uh, for Heart One Highways Revisited, which were all amazing musicians, most of whom fit way more squarely into the outlaw, Americana, folk, country, you know, uh, label, mm-hmm. all of them are absolutely enamored by John McCauley wow. as a songwriter. They all will say, like, he's, he's the best of us. Right. You know, and he doesn't have that... So okay, so mm-hmm. so um, just to go back a little bit, so you watch this film. It obviously, as you said, didn't get great distribution the original. Yeah. Um, but it sort of developed this strong cult following. Yeah. And so, when did you first watch it? Uh, I only was able to finally get my hands on it after I took a meeting with Graham Leader, who's the producer of Heartworn Highways, because I was connected with him in New York. I had heard that they were going to be doing some type of follow-up to it. A uh, friend of mine just luckily enough and this happened was, to be... How, how long this ago was, was it? This was uh, 2011. Okay. And this was the first time you got to see the original... Yeah. The I'd heard, like I said, I'd heard of Heartworn Highways, but I couldn't find it. There was a DVD release. But it was so, like, 
small and underground. Like people were trading VHS copies of the movie. Mad. You could, there was one point where I, you could buy a VHS copy of Heartworn Highways. It's the only way you can get it on eBay for over two hundred dollars. No way. Yeah. But that almost adds to the allure and the mystique, doesn't it? Yeah. That was what makes it so special. I totally. Okay. Yeah. And that's like that's the way people had discovered it over time. Um, now it's a little bit more accessible and it will be available on iTunes and I think actually you can still get the original now we remastered the original added a bunch of like bonus features and that kind of stuff and then there's the new one as okay. well tell um, me how how did you get into the project of Water Highways Revisited I mean were you completely gobsmacked when you saw the, the original well yeah yes definitely when I saw when I met with Graham I already done a bunch of music like mini music documentary work and I was getting already had get, was getting a name as a music filmmaker in okay. New York um and he was in New York. And so it was more like I had already come from trusted sources when I had a meeting with him. And it wasn't my movie yet. It wasn't like we didn't even know what the movie was going to be. Um, but he gave me the movie. I went uh, The original movie. I went home. I watched it. And, yeah, I was just I was so blown away by it. I mean, the, the quality of the music alone. Like, I listened to that soundtrack hundreds of times right. after it. It was just, the music was so rich and nuanced and beautiful. And I discovered artists that I didn't know. Do you think that's the crowning glory of the film, the music within it? Yes. It's a music film, and if the music wasn't the crowning glory, that would be a travesty. Right. But it's also, it's a type of thing where the, the way that it's shot and the, and the, way, it, the way it's orchestrated, just the whole piece works. Mm-hmm. You know? But if the music, if it was shot the same way and orchestrated great, but the music wasn't great, it would be a failure. Right. Okay. And, and, but, the, but part of the... the the, the achievement of Jim Zalapsky, who's the original filmmaker, who's no longer with us, um, was that he was part of that community and he knew how to curate this lineup of artists. So, so he was well. living the experience along with them, was he? Yes. Whilst they were all making their music. And yes. He was part. Movie. He was part of that community. Thus, they trusted him. And the movie is shot in. Are we still going? Yeah. The, the movie was shot in their world, like it was. You were there with them in their homes, sitting around the table, drinking whiskey, you know, working on their backyards, in their, wherever, in the recording studios with them. Wherever they happened to be, that's where the camera was, and the camera was treated like a guest in their house. Amazing. And, okay, so um, with, did you feel there was something, part of the story still to be told? Is that why, is that one of the motivations for you doing the sequel? Or did you just want to keep the story and the genre alive? and pay homage to this amazing movement of Outlaw. Now, I knew immediately that it was a huge risk to do a sequel of any type or a follow-up or or even use the Heart One Highway's name. And I still might get destroyed on some, like, bulletin boards. Don't look at the bulletin boards. Ignore the bulletin boards. Yeah, I mean, because... (laughs) They can't do you any good. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm I'm super proud of what we've created, and I do think that it, it holds very true to the feeling of Heartworn Highways. Um, but was there part of the Heartworn Highway story that you felt was untold, or did you just want to re- reignite? Nope. I didn't feel like there was, there was more untold. I think that, that there were more people that, you know, this was f- almost 40 years later when yeah. we started to make it, and I wanted to show that there was a vibrant community just like existed in the 70s that still existing. That's a community of, of, of musicians who are following in that same spirit who have actually been affected by the original movie as mm-hmm. much as the, the right. original players. That spawned who, them almost. Right, that, that like, like there are now, like a lot of the guys in my movie found out about Guy Clark because of the original movie. Okay. You know, there's one guy named Josh Headley who is, I'm, I, I think he's really, the, I think he's truly 
the, the whole package, and he was a side player in one of the bands. Okay. When we found him, he was playing with Johnny Fritz as his... Doing session sort of stuff. Yeah, he was his fiddle player. He would tour with him. He was very, very well respected as part of the community. He wasn't just, like, a side man in the way he was viewed, but he didn't have his own project. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no, like, clear Josh Headley story. And um, one day, we were filming in the backyard of Johnny Fritz's house, and I heard Josh Headley play guitar. I'd only heard him play a fiddle up until that point. I heard him playing guitar and singing, and it was just one of these, like, you know, take a triple take moments. Just the, the, his voice was like melting. Like it was just, you know, Chris Stapleton. Yes. So it's like, it's like you hear Chris Stapleton's voice. It's just undeniable. You're like, what? It was like that. The thing about virtuosos, it it almost seems so effortless for them as well. Do you know what I mean? When you see really amazing musicians sing or play, they seem as if they're doing it without any sort of stress or concentration almost. Yeah. It's just happening for them. That was it. But for me, it was such a eureka moment because then I was like, Josh, like, what is that? And he's like, oh, that's a Guy Clark song. And that was a song that I didn't know. That's when I was Anyhow I Love You, actually. Right. I was like, holy okay. shit, we had to be filmed it again. And then he played L.A. Freeway, which is the song from the original movie. And then I was like, do you have your own songs? And he's like, kind of sheepishly was like, yeah, you know, there's this one song. And I'm kind of not, I'm done, maybe, I'm not sure. I was like, play it, please. And then Johnny, like, egged him on. And he played it, and the song just blew me away. It's called Weird Thought Thinker, and it's like, it's a song that you just, when you hear it and you're like, I know that song. But you don't know. It's his song, but it has this oh, familiarity. And it's, just, it's just worked. You well, feel like you've already heard it. Right. So now, cut to whatever, six years later, he's just signed with Third Man Records, which is uh, Jack White's own label. Okay. Very, like Margot Price is on it. There's a few other, like, um, like the Raconteur is his band. But he's mm-hmm. Jack White curates it himself. It's a very, like, highly touted label. And he's got his own project coming out, and I think he's going to be, like, He'll, I, I, I just have this feeling like of all the guys in the film and there's a lot of guys who have grown to be even more famous or more known since we started shooting I have this real sneaking suspicion that Josh is going to be one of these like, he might even rise above to the whole pack wow yeah um, so, so how, I know I kind of veered off the no not at all it's so fascinating all of <laughs> yeah. it but what I want to know is um, when you so you, you watched the film the original and then did you know that there was still an outlaw movement that existed or did you have to go and find them what was the research process and um, and when you actually fit, when you got around to the film so how did you find these people and mm-hmm. then when you got around to the filming did you go deep down and dirty as well to, to sort of you know uh, sort of you know to, to to try and recreate that sort of feeling of living living with the bands and you know did you grow a beer did you drink whiskey did you start smoking <laughs> or did you do it from a little bit more of a distance than the original yeah it definitely was done more at a distance than the original because i i just didn't want to come off as trying too hard of forcing something that wasn't me mm. like i didn't live there i wasn't jim Salapsky and i didn't spend you know years living with these guys which made it you know i had to immediately make them feel comfortable working with me like i was this like you know, Johnny Fritz, he even said it in the Rolling Stone interview, he's like, here's this, like, like little punk from Brooklyn who thinks he's going to, like, come in and, like, make a heart-worn highway or something. He said, like, he was super skeptical. So I had to just be like, look, I was being transparent with them. I was like, yes, I know I'm taking on heart-worn highways, um, but I feel like I can do it. I'm asking for your trust. I had the original producer from Heartworn Highways. I did have the right to use the name. And I think just in showing up and having the right attitude, um, you know, people just welcome me, and nice. they all. And, and the thing is, also, it's like once you get a few people, like one or two people who are notable to commit, then everybody else feels comfortable too. Mm-hmm. So, like, I got John McCauley right away. I, 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 I had shot, I'd filmed him before, 
I spoke to him about it, and he agreed to do it. And, and once, he's a central character and in, he's in like, Revisited. Yes, he's a central character. And once, you know, you have John McCauley attached, like, as I said to you before, he's so well-respected that even if people didn't know me, they knew the heartworn name, they knew that McCauley was in it, and so they gave me the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. to, to do it. But um, aside from that, you know, I didn't live there. I, the, the film was shot over several trips to Nashville, all of which I spent, you know, a few days at a time. Um, I love Nashville. I would live there. I feel like I'd gotten a chance to know the city, even though I never really did live there. Um, but yeah, it was done, you know, sort of quick and dirty. Amazing. How long did the project take yeah. from start to finish? Because I also noticed that yeah. I think the Rolling Stone magazine interview, that was a year ago, was it? Or More than that. More than that. Was, and and you are about to release at that point, were you? Yeah, well, this is a common thing these days. I mean, there's so much content out there mm. that unless you win a huge music, a, a huge film festival, uh, and even if you do, there's no guarantee. At least, sure. but, but like, you'd have to like win Sundance or win South by Southwest or Toronto or like just really go in there with the right sales team ready to like raise the hype and whatnot. Because otherwise, you don't get the distribution. There's just there's, despite having more outlets than ever to view content, it also means that you have to pay more to promote that content. Right, to get your to, head above the water. To get your head above the, above water. the water. Yeah, exactly. And so. People just are very risk-averse when it comes to, like, acquiring any of this content. Because mm-hmm. they know that even if they can take it on and they can get it, they can get content for such a cheap deal. Like, I mean, honestly, the deal that we made to get our distributor, it's, like, horrible. I, I, be, I would be surprised if I ever see a penny right. from the film. I just want people to see it at yeah, this point. Sure. But this, it's a labor it's, of love. It's, yeah, it's not a great business to get into indie filmmaking. Okay. Just like it's not a great business to get into being a musician if you really want to make it a business. You've got to get really creative about how you sell it. Um, that said, these days there are ways to sell directly to your audience using Vimeo and you know other yep. you know online tools. But I have a traditional distributor; they got it into Walmart. Um, and that adds kudos, doesn't it? When you get a proper distributor, you know, yeah. it feels like it just feels like a more professional undertaking. Yes, I suppose, when it got... does, and they do have relationships that I, that most of us don't. And whatever percentage that they're taking, whatever high percentage they're taking. As long as it gets out there, for me as the filmmaker, it works better than even if I were to make a few bucks selling it because I will get some more visibility out of, you know, getting it in the right outlets. But the whole project, I mean, to your original question, it took, I mean, it's 2000, almost 2018 now. We started filming it six years ago. Wow. Six freaking years ago. You must be so happy that you've actually completed it. I mean, I've completed it. I've honestly, Oliver, I completed it fucking four years ago <laughs> I think I mean it's crazy that I'm still like having conversations about it that I'm still like now like talking about this getting out there I love it I'm just so happy I mean there were times where I just felt like we're never gonna it's like maybe I'll just like post it on like Vimeo myself and it's just because it's it's so daunting the idea of finding a distributor you know having them know what to do with it the original movie never actually had one because the same problem that we're having now happened uh, to them Hmm. which was here's this sort of very niche music documentary that doesn't have a clear story and doesn't have any huge celebrities in it and even though they know that it's good because they've watched it and it's been reviewed well and then they know that the original movie now has a, a positive story to it it's still a hard sell yeah of course it's still a really hard sell hmm. and so you know I just 
I have to wait and see what happens. And I'm still waiting to see what happens. I don't know how it's going um, to I mean, I think, for me, a real gauge of success is to com- actually complete long-term plans. So the fact that you've even yeah. completed it. I mean, you you just mentioned you're 41 now, and so you, and you're still a filmmaker. So it must yeah. have been a struggle for you through yeah. your life to, to, to stay true to doing what you want to do. But do yeah. you think it, that is the thing to do in life? I mean, do you think that you need to compromise in terms of work? And do you think it's sometimes you've just got to bite the bullet and say, yeah, I need a solid career? Or do you think you should always stay true to exactly what you want to do and your passions in life because it seems like a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a discourse which never seems to have a categoric answer emphatic yeah. answer either way some people t- truly believe that you know you should always do what you want to do in your life I remember listening to an interview with Paolo Coelho recently and he was mm-hmm. saying you've got to have the courage you've got to have the courage in your life to do the thing that you actually want to do otherwise you just poor imitation of yourself yeah other people think you know you've got to pay the rent man you've got to make sure you provide that baseline now as a sort of you know you're a father to be yeah I don't, don't you know don't want to add stress to your life but it's a, <laughs> it's a difficult one isn't it it's very staying difficult. true to what you want to do in your life and, and your passions or yeah. just you know cutting the you know cutting your losses and saying okay I'm going to do something it's it's, it's it's I think it's the, the the most difficult question to answer. I don't think anybody who has advice on this is right or wrong. Like I think that you everybody needs to listen to themselves. Mm. You know, you need to listen to yourself because the, the person that I am now, the filmmaker that I am now, is not the same filmmaker I, I was when I was twenty four years old. You know, I was idealistic. I had the world open to me. I could make. I I, I had the space to make as many mistakes as I wanted or I could at the time. Whereas now, because I decided to be in a committed relationship, which led naturally to having a kid, I have much deeper responsibilities that are beyond myself, but that's okay. I'm happy to be there. It's where the, it's where my own life trajectory has taken me. Mm. And if I were to have not done what I did when I was younger and I had this burning passion in me to be a filmmaker that I never, I never like tried to do, I think I would probably be living with that for the rest of my life or like waiting for the time where I could just fucking bust free of everything like some you hear these stories of people doing because it's just it, it's not realistic as far as supporting yourself and that's something that you just you can't you can't take for granted you can't take it lightly I mean people lose family they lose the closest people to them because they're like so committed to their art and that's sure. fine you know mm-hmm. like if that's if, if you're listening to yourself and you say that's what I have to do you know you know that you you basically know that you're accepting a bunch more suffering and a bunch more shit that you have to do but if that is what your internal barometer is telling you you need to do by all means do it and don't complain when the shit gets rough <laughs> yes. you know because you, you you've Cause decided it... to take that on the reality is that shit got rough many times for me when i decided to take on what i taken on when i was in my 20s and didn't have a wife no and didn't have kids sure. you know i i fucking did temp work i managed a bar i was a cater waiter you know i did you know all these things that i felt like i had to do romantically and otherwise just so that i could you know have the freedom and space to explore my creativity there it's a lovely answer so what yeah. you're saying is you can carry on doing the things you want to do in your life but sometimes you just need to adapt the way that you're doing them in order to to evolve and to uh, yeah to allow for other things other responsibilities and other costs that naturally come into your life when you get older i mean yeah. you're you've made this film now as you say it may not may or may not be box office it may or may not you know yeah. sustain you financially but you're also still in the music industry you're yes. heavily involved in all that so you're doing what you want to do in your life well i've i've what i think what i've done differently than people who just put their stake in the sand and say this is who i am this is my identity and until people know me for this i am going to be relentless and keep going and clawing and blah 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 
until people finally recognize <laughs> that I'm here and I'm talented and fuck you, you know? Like, there are plenty of people that I think have that attitude. But you, you don't have that attitude. No, because I don't think I'm the best filmmaker. I've learned over time that I chose to do something that I was passionate about, and I think I'm pretty good at it, but I've learned that there are things that I'm better at. Mm -hmm. um, and Such as? I, I think I'm... Well... <laughs> <laughs> to compare all the things that I'm good just, at yeah. versus each other. Just talk about what you're comfortable with. You know... I, I don't know how I, good you are I, in the bedroom, I, for example. <laughs> no, no. This one, you wouldn't want me on your podcast for that, I promise you. <laughs> Sorry, ladies, I'm taken anyway, and, you know... <laughs> someone else's burden. Trust me to get crew. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Um, um, I think that what I've learned over time I'm best at is... is being with people, really, like learning how to bring community and bringing people together. I did that for Heart One Highways. That, that's part of what was able to pull it off was that I had the ability to essentially sell people to come to the table I, I, without knowing who I am. And I think that the, the, the role that I've taken on recently, which is very different than the filmmaking realm, like I'm, I'm working with a huge tech company right now on... on uh, on music, on something that's very—it's a music initiative more than anything. It's, and, and there is a media component to it, but I wasn't hired because I was the best filmmaker. You know, I, I was hired because I started to do something that mixed music and community, and then I was good enough in a room to convince some higher ups that like I could be great in a room with a bunch of people and convince them to do this and join on and you know spread the passion for that. And you're loving it, and you're thriving. And I'm loving it and thriving in it. Brilliant. And it's and it's honestly my day to day is not about thinking about what projects I'm going to sell, which has been my life for the last 20 sure. years. To and you've got a little bit more stability. Yeah, it's, and yeah, I've got some more stability. And um, I actually listened to some podcasts. It might have been The Ferris Show. It might have been another one that I listened to. But um, I remember listening to somebody who had a lot of success that was asked the question, like, well, what if you did what you did now and it didn't have this success to it and it, it kind of failed and now you were, like, question, like, what do I do next? And that person said, actually, I think it was Matt Mullenweg who okay. started. Um, WordPress. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm pretty sure it was him. And automatically. Yes, mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure he had said, um, I think I would just like try and get a job at a really top, great company where I could just get my salary, but also just be in a room with people that were smarter than me that I can just kind of be around and absorb and learn and take my time, sort of, to do that job and just figure out by being surrounded by great people nice. and a great company that has like stability mm -hmm. and learn and that just triggered it hit something in me that I was like yeah that actually sounds really good you know and so hearing that from somebody who yeah he did achieve success and he doesn't have to do that but even knowing that that's like a, a, a backup plan that he feel, felt like he could say with a lot of certainty yeah um, I mean that's sort of what's happened to me now like I, I spent the last 15 years essentially hustling projects. Making films the whole time. Making films, and, and when I say hustling, I mean literally like, I've had pitches going, like hopes built up. Huge yeah, people man. in the room, you know. As like, a creator myself, I know all about that Yeah. Feeling. The roller coaster. Totally, it's yeah. like you just, you, and then you have to always put on a positive spin when you tell people, especially family, Oh, you know? totally, yeah. You know, it's just so much of that up and down, and, and, and I still will probably have more of that in my life. I can't imagine not, because I, there is a thrill to it, and that's part of the creative process, mm. it's part of the journey. Um, but I decided to do something that I love to do, and I didn't think of it as making any money. I just was like, I love music, and I love intimate shows, like bringing, bringing people into like 
an apartment or a really cool home and having a concert there. You know, it's something that has been practiced for many years, sort of under the radar. Absolutely. Um, but it still feels amazing. I've been to one and I loved it. It was just fantastic. Love that marriage of music and intimate, sort of on almost non-public spaces. I know we were in a coffee shop and we went to ours, but it all just feels like being in somebody's house, doesn't it? It's, that's, if you get the right space, you know, you have an audience of like 50, 60 people max, you know, sometimes it could be 30, 40. It doesn't matter. It's just the point is like getting a small group together, great musician in a cozy room where there's easy access to like the bathroom and drinks and, you know, just the things that you need to just sort of just be able to connect with the music. Mm. It's so magical. Yeah. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that for fun just because I had great musicians. And you're getting paid for it. Well, now I wasn't at first. <laughs> right, sure. You know, I did it for fun. And then somebody who had come to one of my shows who enjoyed it started working um, with one of the founders of Airbnb. Um, Airbnb launched an experiences platform last year. And before that, you know, he, he had approached Michelle and I about, you know, hey, you know, I have this idea about doing, you know, bringing Airbnb and house concerts, intimate concerts together. I would love to have you meet Joe, one of the founders, and tell him about, you know, the shows that you've put on. Which just shows the benefits yeah. of being creative in the first place. Yeah. If you hadn't done, started that concept yourself, then people wouldn't have seen those talents. And, you know, it may, you don't always have to do things for money in order to further your life and further your career. Do you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. Just doing creative things, yes. doing things which you really believe in, then hopefully you can connect with other people through that. Yeah. And, you know... Well, oftentimes it's that it's when you have this agenda that's like, you know, I have to do this to get this to get Mm. there. You know, yes, there is definitely like calculation and and thinking and all that strategy Mm. has its place. There's plenty of people that have calculation that fail at it. Right. And then there are people that just say, I don't have any strategy other than I want people to I want to add value to other people's lives. And and I want to add value by bringing them something that means something to me and just enjoy it like be creative about it and enjoy it and just throw it in there for the betterment of like the fucking world I don't care if I lose money or time or energy on it I just want to do it um, and then shit man I now have a job at Airbnb you know getting you know decently compensated to lead a creative strategy around how to bring this type of concert mm. To more people. It's wonderful though because you know, I do think it's actually almost quite a selfish pursuit wanting to do things for other people because selfishly speaking it does make you happier doesn't yes. it? It makes you happier to do things for other people yes. you get a good vibe from that. Yes. One definition of suffering is thinking about yourself Yes. you know and so the less time you have in your head thinking about yourself I think generally the more happy you, you become. 100% I mean I've And you're it... such a sociable person you're such a great <laughs> communicator that you're just perfect for that sort of uh, arena. Well that's what you asked me like I think I'm better at that than I am as, as a filmmaker you know, but I, you're going to continue with film. Yeah, I, I love film because to me it's like you don't have to be – people say like you have to be the best. Be the best, be the best, be the best. If you practice over and over again, you will become one of the best because there's not many people that commit mm-hmm. to actually the practice, the hours that go into it. So I think just from the sheer hours that I've put into it already and if I continue at it, I will just keep getting better at it. And will I ever be the best? I don't know, but I enjoy doing it. I've been doing more still photography and loving like actually taking pictures stills even more so than like being responsible for putting together a whole like narrative structure of a uh, of a film. Yeah. I just love images and and that's become a great creative outlet. That's actually led now to some pretty nicely paid side gigs cool. as a still photographer. You know, so I think such a mover and shaker. I There's but, so much stuff uh, going on. But I'm just doing. I'm following not so much my passion as much as just. I'm, I'm, when something allows me to be creative and I have my hands on it, 
I'm not holding back. I'm not, I'm not putting all this like weight of the world on it and hoping that people recognize it so that I can continue to do it. I just do it and share it, and I'm excited about sharing it. You're staying true to what yeah. you enjoy doing, and it still takes a lot of courage, that, I think. Talking yeah. about the best, you're saying, you know, I want to be the best filmmaker, or everybody thinks you've got to be the best filmmaker. What's the best film? It's such a difficult question, but yeah. you could throw some references in there, because somebody who's, you know, so into movies and filmmaking, yeah. you could throw some references at me of great films and great documentaries that immediately um, spring to mind. Yeah, oh, man, it's, it, it, is, it is one of the hardest questions. It's like, what's your, what's your favourite food? Oh, it's ridiculous. What's you your favourite band? I mean, it's yeah. an impossible... Yeah, I'll just throw out some, you know... There's there's the obvious and the obvious for the reason I mean you're talking about like the films that Francis Ford Coppola has made from The Godfather mm-hmm. you know and Apocalypse Now and the unedited version I mean they're just they're masterpieces the original Godfather is a masterpiece um, I'm not as crazy about Scorsese as everybody else's but when okay. Scorsese's at his best he's I mean it's just so much fun it's mm-hmm. just, they're so they're so like dirty and gritty and and he's and he's so good with music like his music cues and, and goodfellas like Derek and the dominoes coming in it's just like like i i, I remember movies terrifying like, like like he can terrify can't he yeah he can terrify but also just evoke the the emotion and those moments where just all cylinders are firing at the at once where you know music image story and they all just combine and you're like yes yeah but honestly like i i often feel this and it and it and I think there's one movie that really, like, took, like... It, 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 the filmmaker is unabashedly influenced by the same guys, by Scorsese and Coppola and Robert Altman um, and some of the greats. And he even says, like, I stole Tarantino. I stole from them because everybody steals. Everybody these borrow whatever. I take the things. But the orchestration of the movie Boogie Nights. Okay. You seen Boogie Nights? Of course. I mean, I saw that movie... I, I was lucky enough to... I've gone to the premiere of the film at the Toronto Film Festival. Wow. Uh, I think it was 97 or 98. Um, and I remember, like, literally, like, giggling at the scene where Alfred Molina is, like, has this, like, little guy throwing fireworks, and he's a drug dealer, and he's, like, so just fucking, like, cavalier, and, and you could just see, like, Mark Wahlberg and, and you know, John C. Riley, and they're just sitting there, and the, the tension keeps building, and then there's these fireworks going off and you're just like because they think it's gunshots and he's holding a gun the whole time I and mean, it to me was just and it was so deep into this movie that had so much comedy mm. and true drama and this movie like this movie is about family underneath it all it's about lost souls that need family okay you know it's mm. not about porn even though it's sexy as fuck you know it's about the need to connect and feel like you have a place that you're accepted and underneath it all, all the shit that people are doing just to hustle and stay alive yeah. and be and be relevant in a crazy time. In a crazy time, where, you know, every every time's crazy. What yeah. time's not crazy? Yeah, you know. True. But but that time period, you know, it's just it's just all of that. The, 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 it all coalesced in this movie that I just didn't want to end, and it was a long movie. Yeah. And honestly, like I just I could have watched another three hours. Yeah, I know exactly. If, I know if, that feeling. If Paul Thomas Anderson just kept going, I would fucking go along with him yeah, totally. for that. And uh, so, to me, like when I think of a movie that just I know that if I put that on, I'm just going to be smiling. Between the the camera, you know, the way that the way that it's shot, the acting. I mean, each role in that movie, fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, he's a genius. Oh he my, was a genius. God, yes. I mean, you you just. It goes so deep. John yeah. C. Riley's hilarious. I mean, even Mark fucking Wahlberg as Dirk Diggler. I might know, watch Burt it tonight. Reynolds, you know? I might you know? have to watch it again. Julianne tonight. Moore is devastating, and, yeah. and, and Heather Graham's roller. I mean, there's your stunning. I mean, it's just 
It's got a, something of everything in there. It's, got, um, it's one yeah. of those films where there's yeah. loads of films around where I believe it's just impossible to imagine they aren't actually taking drugs. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. As part of the filming yeah. process. Oh. I mean, you just imagine, like... Well, you know, it's like... So, it just feels so credible and authentic all yeah. the way through. You just think, they must be strung out, these people. They're not that good but actors. The, if, I mean, if, they are good actors, but you know what I mean? Like, they can't be that authentic without actually taking yeah, I would say, though, if you are that strung out while the scene's going on, it might be hard to get multiple takes. Sure. <laughs> it just felt so authentic. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Totally. Oh, man. I mean, talk about, you know, Val Kilmer for uh, The Doors. Uh, him and Oliver Stone, yeah. like, they went really deep into, mm. like, you know, uh, psychedelics. And they definitely, he became Jim Morrison, essentially, why not? before that. Away, he, if you can get away with yeah. it, why not? Totally. Uh, and you can yeah. shoot with them, you can shoot them straight, and you can shoot them fucked yeah. up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Easy, easy, easy Rider. So Easy Rider, which is, you know, a seminal film in the 70s with, uh, you know, um, uh, Dennis Hopper, um... You, know, you ever seen Easy Rider? Gosh. Of course. I mean, Easy Rider was was somehow cobbled together. Like, mm. they didn't have any budget. And the fuck, one of the most famous scenes in that movie when you're in New Orleans and tripping, they're actually tripping. The, the cinematographers yeah. are fucked up. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it comes across. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> what about documentaries? Because, I mean, you're doc- you obviously made documentaries yourself, so is there one that sticks out? Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. One of the right. ones, one of the ones that, that really, that was a seminal documentary to me um, is a movie called Sherman's March. Oh, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, and uh, you know, it was I was I, I went to school, I didn't go to a film school, but I studied. I had this great film professor. I did this film theory class, and you did it. Deg- you majored in film at university. I majored in communication ah. um, and film. There was a part of it that was film. Okay, um, but I took a film class and. And Don Fredrickson was the name of my, my professor. I can't believe I remember that. It was a while ago. But he's such a... His film class really exposed me to films that I just didn't know really existed. I grew up, like, on Hollywood films. Like yeah, most sure. people did. He took it a bit more left field for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, we watched, we watched, like, fucking, like, revolutionary documentaries. Like, stuff that was made in, like, Argentina by these documentaries called Salons and Gatino. And they're, like, juxtaposing... Um, it's called The Hour of the Furnaces. I remember this movie. And this isn't the one I was going to say, but it, like, juxtaposes, like, these, like, bourgeois golfers, like, eating, like, McDonald's hamburgers, like, the nice big hamburgers, and then, like, cows getting slaughtered. Right. There's so much of, like... So it's got meat. a bit of the sort of Baraka feel about it. We talked about Baraka, didn't we? Baraka's amazing. amazing. But Baraka, this movie was, like, edgy and, like, almost, I think it was black and white even, and, like, okay. just, like, really, like, rough. And Baraka is, like, 70 millimeter. Every frame is just, like, a painting. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Gotta watch that different. Too. Um, but this, anyway, this movie called Sherman's March really, Sherman's March. really affected me. It was made in the seventies as well. Um, a guy named Ross McElwee is mm-hmm. the filmmaker. The and premise. It, the premise is so it, it, the movie itself is kind of like a precursor to what has become reality TV. But it was done way before anyone even knew what reality TV was. And and I can't stand reality TV. I think it's so you know uh, coerced and contrived. But what he did was he was uh, a first person. Uh, shooter so he he was the filmmaker he had a camera on his shoulder with a microphone but in the 70s so it was shooting film he was like a big clunky thing and he set out to do a documentary that told the story of general sherman's march to the sea which was a turning point in the civil war okay he's from the south okay but the movie is really has nothing to do with that it's, it's basically him on his search for date Really? Life, right, <laughs> but basically he goes and he 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 meets these women who like his a lot of them were set up by his mom or like this weird family friend because he's like this he's basically like this now turning middle aged 
documentarian who's making no money, who does these random weird jobs, and everybody's trying to be like, you got to get your serious with your life. Right. And so he's like, I'm not. I'm making Brilliant. this movie about General Sherman. You know, I got this like funding behind it. You know, and so. So he starts to like says, "Fuck it! I'm just gonna make this a first-person account of my own life while making this movie." So every, but it's all these women who he's meeting, and they're all like, "Why are you holding this camera? Like, why can you just shut it off? Whatever." And then they just forget about it eventually. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. asks them these questions, and he gets all these amazing, quirky, real, honest moments. And then he has this, but like, which have nothing to do with the Civil War. No, but the, but the, he always brings conversations back to that, <laughs> right. just to like appease. Because it's like, supposed to be the story. To be about it. And then he has like these little like graphics that will pop up that will show like really? his motion. It's, 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 is it it's, sad? It's, it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Mm. Yeah. It really what it is. It, what's so great about it is that it's so human. Mm. Like you feel for this guy. Does he get the woman at the end? Yeah, kind of. Oh, okay. And then the best is that, and then since then, this is made in the seventies. He's had a series of movies that are all made the same way. Right. It's a movie called like the. So he uh, became successful after that. Yes. Right. The, mo- the movie actually won a bunch of awards right. um, and brought attention to him. But yet he still maintained the same style of how he makes his movies. And now he like kind of it's always about his life. So he has this woman that he got together with, then and he had a kid with, and he tells like the story a little bit things about it affecting his kid, and then his family was in the tobacco business, which he found out, and he tells the story about the tobacco industry through his own eyes, and it's fascinating. And so, yeah, he's done a bunch. That's but, a great yeah. reference. Yeah. That's a really great reference. Yeah. And probably not a, not a lot of people have heard about that. No, Maybe. I don't think so. I oh. highly, highly recommend it. Uh, Sherman's March. Do yeah. you um, have a book or books that you have read which have had a big impact on your life? Yeah, you know, books are... I, I'm, I, I was the kid in high school who read Cliff Notes like the shortened versions of stories. Right. I, did never, I didn't have a real love for books and then until I got older and then I kind of just nostalgically was like, this. I, I, I feel like I should be reading, you know? And I started reading. And I still, I'm not the best. I don't have a, a, a constant habit with reading, but I've read a bunch of books. Modern society sort of doesn't, it's not really complete, particularly conducive to reading, is it? Yeah. Because we've got all these other forms of media these days. It's too, like, yeah. It becomes, it feels more like work. Although, when I get into a good book and I allow myself the space and don't Amazing. Rush, it's amazing. You know those magic eye drawings? Yeah. You know those, those 3D things where you have to look at them for a while and then you can the image pops out eventually when you stop focusing? Yeah. Do you know those things? Yes. That's how I feel about books. You know, you, to start with, it really takes effort. And then when you suddenly, like, you click over to no effort being taken and you're just on the train of the book. Speaking of no effort and the train, I have <laughs> I have Michelle meeting me somewhere okay. in 20 minutes All in right. Berkeley. You've got to get so out of here. In Berkeley? Is, yeah. Oh, my God. Hold on a second. I, can, I have to give her a quick call because... I just realized the time. Shit. It's been so much fun. It's 20 past five already. <laughs> this is a fucking... Edit that. Hey. It's a long fall. Uh, I'm, I totally lost track of time. I'm sitting here talking to Oliver, doing this podcast. Hey, Michelle. <laughs> I'm, at the, I'm at the battery right now. I'm going to leave here in five. Okay. That's perfect. Why don't you just do that? I'll call you as soon as I get out. Okay? Go to Ashby Bart. It's right next to Berkeley Ball. Just park there. I'll meet you there. Bye. See? <laughs> See what I mean? Uh, She's like, I need to meditate. Literally, what she said. She goes, really? my, brain, my brain is collapsing. Oh my I need to meditate. Um, Dude, let's wrap this up anyway. Wrap it just, up. Wrap um, it up. It's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. I feel absolutely certain there's going to be a part two because we literally <laughs> just feel like we've touched the tip yeah. of the iceberg. Um, but thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely awesome. I cannot wait to see the film. I can't believe I haven't seen it and then conducted this interview without having seen the That's film. That's great. But yeah. I will do that. How can I get a hold of it? And just remind us of the release date again. Release date is November 28th on iTunes, uh, Amazon. I think there's going to be a few others. Uh, so, yeah. And we're going to like have some crazy... Sp- 
gala screening and party, uh, right? There was, you know, there, we had our premieres years ago, but we will do something. I'm putting together, I'm trying to bring the world together now and do a, uh, a, a tour of house concerts with musicians from the film. I probably will do something here. Um, Maybe with, you can with... get your company involved. I'm sure you've already thought about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we have. We but have. Dude, absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Of course. Just...